Hey everyone, I'm Somesh Dash. I'm an venture capitalist at IVP, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. My name is Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with talented and interesting individuals linked to the global Indian and South Asian community. It's informal and informative, adding insights to our evolving cultural expressions, where each person can proudly say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Hello, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, a conversation with growth investment venture capitalist, Somesh Dash. Stay tuned. Hey, everyone, and a sincere thank you again for listening, sharing, rating, and downloading the podcast. If you're enjoying these, I hope you can share a kind review and follow us on social media at Dr. Abhaydarnika. So you know this past week, we saw a fairly acute event in the U.S. banking industry with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, certainly quite important in the startup and venture ecosystems, but also with so many ripple effects in global and local tethers. Now, I've been thinking a lot about how communities ebb and flow, how they support each other and stay resilient, and how so many creative tensions are always at play for businesses at all stages, especially related to the identities, financial drivers, policies, and relationships that often govern and guide innovators, investors, and leaders in every phase of their careers. So it's actually a great time to catch up with someone who has a front row seat to this in Somesh Dash, a partner at Institutional Venture Partners, or IVP, focusing on late-stage venture capital and growth equity investments. Having invested in a who's who of companies like Dropbox, Twitter, Coinbase, Discord, Netflix, Uber, and Snap. Now, Somesh grew up in the Bay Area after his parents immigrated from Odisha with deep roots culturally, as his grandmother was the late Manorama Mahapatra, a social worker, journalist, and editor at the Odia newspaper, The Samaj. Somesh went to Berkeley and Stanford to study business and has spent nearly the past 25 years learning and succeeding in Silicon Valley, developing relationships with founders and growing companies, serving on many boards and building community wherever he goes. We caught up for a broad conversation about the intersections of his personal and professional experiences, but we started by chatting about how to break down, digest, and learn from the Silicon Valley bank collapse. You know, in the early 80s, venture capital wasn't an industry. It was an experiment. It wasn't yeah. institutionalized. It was really a cottage form of investing. And it wasn't its own dedicated asset class. It's very different than 2023. In those days, venture capitalists and startups couldn't open bank accounts, couldn't get credit cards, couldn't get mortgages. And Silicon Valley Bank formed with a simple business idea that we believe in this ecosystem. Sure. We believe in these participants. So Silicon Valley Bank expanded over the last four decades. They, of course, do lots of venture capital firms, you know, whether it's our bank accounts, you know, the way we do corporate credit, the way venture debt. They also, though, bank a pretty large percentage of the nonprofits in the Bay Area. Mm. They do a fair amount of the K through 12 public schools. Many of them have bank accounts with Silicon Valley Bank. They do startups in Bangalore, Beijing, and Tel Aviv. Most of the Napa Valley wine industry actually runs on them. And yes, on one hand, the end product may be luxurious of wine, but it, those are risky businesses that are usually family owned, right. right? And so their impact goes way beyond the 20, 30 mile radius of Silicon Valley across the world. The other tragic thing was 
on one hand, um, certainly fault is to be placed among the business decisions made by Silicon Valley Bank management a few years ago. They'd be the first to admit that. They did not anticipate the interest rates changing so quickly. What's unusual about startups in Silicon Valley is that typically what happens is you raise, most small businesses raise very linearly. Like you get a bank loan for a million dollars every couple of years and you use that to pay 10 to 15 people. In Silicon Valley, you get these financings. So you get a venture capital firm like IVP to put $50 million in, and then you rapidly hire and you burn down. Yeah. So that was happening at hyperspeed in 2021. And then when the interest rates started rising, funding started immediately being impacted. So suddenly there weren't as many bank deposits. Burn rates, unfortunately, didn't go down as quickly as funding did. So suddenly you saw accounts dwindling. Companies needed more liquidity in the form of venture debt and credit. So they needed to have uh, the ability to fund that. And they also had a small arm that did investments in venture firms. And they were kind of overlevered on that, I'm sure, a little sure. bit. So where I think this kind of culminated is there was certainly some panic that happened when suddenly a number of us were on a call with the, C the former CEO of Silicon Valley Bank who said, we may have a liquidity issue. Please don't panic. Well, when you say please don't panic, right, that's... a number of times people start thinking about panicking. <laughs> sure. And so the second thing that is tragic, though, is a lot of what we saw last week could have been avoided. So, yes, it was a kind of a run on the bank, but it was also a social media induced contagion where because of Twitter, because of WhatsApp, because of Signal, because of Slack inside companies, because of text messages. In 2008, Abe, you and I were just talking about it. We didn't see that happen with Lehman Brothers or Washington Mutual. There was no Twitter. There was no WhatsApp. It's a very different world. There's smartphone was a year old, but the iPhone was a year old. So I think what we saw immediately was on social media, people saying in all caps, take your money out, VCs right. calling their companies, uh, entrepreneurs telling their friends. And immediately, I think the number I read was $40 billion left Silicon Valley Bank in 24 hours. Wow. Astounding. To me, that is astounding to yeah. show you the power of digital finance and social media. Yeah. And so what it, and this is a 40 year old institution that changed in about 40 hours. Right. right. And so to me, that's, I'm still coming to terms with that. So why did this matter to this ecosystem? I'll give you one simple word, payroll. If a startup company can't access more than $250,000 on Wednesday, March 15th, the vast majority of them can't make payroll. And so what, most companies did is they tried to transfer their money out of Silicon Valley Bank to a JP Morgan, a Bank of America, you know, other small regional banks. Um, unfortunately, some were able to do it. Some were not because the FDIC came in and froze that mechanism. There was chaos. People at SVB stopped picking up the phone. So there was a lot of just chaos when this all happened. Sure. Um, you know, candidly, even us at IVP, we've had our payroll and our banking partnership with SVB for decades. So yeah. even we had an existential question of, can we pay people on the 15th at our firm? Yeah. Luckily, the FDIC came in and solved that by basically backstopping all deposits. Um, so it wasn't a bailout. A lot of the headlines I saw was it was a bailout. It was actually more a protection of deposits. Sure. Almost a protection of the system. Of the system, exactly. Yeah. It was a... It was a Equity holders and management did not get bailed out. Um, there was no, it was different than 2008 in that way. And I think if we learned a lesson from TARP in 2008, it's the entire system, you know, can become really volatile unless the federal government steps in and does something. At the same time, you don't want to reward the bad actors. So I was, right. I was actually very proud as an American to see our system work. You know, you know, so it, 
is there any point after these kinds of episodes, do people then become so risk averse to say, look, I can't actually bank with smaller, regional, more boutique, white glove type of services and institutions like Silicon Valley Bank. I need to stick with larger institutions, number one. And then number two, does this kind of behavior, for the most part, just encourage future risk and and risk taking? Because if the Fed's basically going to say, yes, even these kinds of things cannot fail, then the message perhaps is, is that in a few years, in a few months, in a few days, that the risk taking of the same kind of process that brought this about with Silicon Valley Bank is just poised to be repeated. So two excellent questions. The first one, I would say, there is a scenario that I don't think would be positive, that suddenly there's a flight to safety, as we call it, right? where all capital goes towards the top four banks, the large conglomerates, and that's you know JP Morgan being the largest, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch being the next, Wells Fargo. I think that would not be a good thing. I think there's obvious reasons to put your capital with them, but in the startup ecosystem, so in our portfolio, we have 80 or so active companies. The very mature ones that are close to IPO, they already manage most of their money through the big four because they're about to go public. There's an underwriting relationship. They have all kinds of other reasons to do so. Yeah. But startup companies themselves need access to cash. They need access to credit. And candidly, the largest of the large banks, unless they acquire a First Republic or SVB, aren't designed to underwrite for small businesses in California at that stage or around the world. So actually, what I would say is the opposite of it. I think what's going to happen is nobody's going to, quote, put all their eggs in one basket again after this episode. There's going to be, I think, diversification where some cash will be kept in the large four, but some will be kept in places like Mercury and Brex. I'm an investor in Brex. We talked about it a bit, where you still have then the access to have more digital ways to move money. You have better terms. You might have the ability to do expense management and things like that more digitally. So I think there's going to be both startups that become more prominent because of this, and there's going to be a flight towards safety. You know, on your second question, I actually think the conclusion I've kind of come to is that the FDIC and the Fed are in one way they're saying, hey, we will make sure the system doesn't fail, but we have no problem if individual banks fail. Silicon Valley Bank failed. If you saw the news from the UK, HSBC bought the UK assets for a pound, right? Right. And- I think because of that, what we know is this was clearly, if you look at the Biden administration, they're saying we're going to investigate practices. We're going to look at executive compensation. Many of the things that people are very upset about, you know, in the last crisis are things that are really being focused on right now. Sure. Now, I think the real question is, does this cause the recovery in Silicon Valley to elongate, right? Yeah. Because the thing that public market international investors don't like to see is volatility or instability. So we have the combination now of a system that's going through, you know, this right now. Yeah. And we have an election year next year in India and the United States. We have two massive presidential elections that affect about 1.8 billion people. So I think my forecast for the next 18 months is that we're not likely to see, you know, rates going down dramatically. And we're not likely to see unicorns being created every day and valuations. We're not going to see most of that. It's going to be a slower recovery, more like if you remember, Abe. 2002 to 2005 than the financial crisis. Sure. The three or four, at least in my adult lifetime, relative panicky, volatile moments, certainly after 9-11 and the sort of resultant years from there, definitely 2008, definitely the pandemic. And now this, 
you know, more on an emotional level, more on a sort of like, hey, the roots of how you think level. How acute was this for you? This was this was quite acute because it was so unexpected. I think for me, you know, if you think about like most of us have seen in India, payroll, employment, these are identity issues, right? These are yeah. how families are compensated. These are how kids' school fees and tuition fees are paid. Right. So when when you touch payroll, you're really touching the identity of families and identity of employees. And so yeah. there were some very, I, I came up with a few reactions. The first was this affects millions of people because you know, just imagine a world in which the economic situation is bad, where someone's not getting their paycheck. They're not sure when the next one's coming. People are going to have to make tough decisions. And it, it really hurts those that don't have security. The second thing it made me realize is this cohort of entrepreneurs is so resilient of them. Yeah. They went through the pandemic. They went through the boom of 2021. They went through the bust of 2022. And now they've been through an existential financial crisis in 2023. So my joke is like, this is the most resilient group of founders I've kind of seen. And like, what's next? Who knows? Yeah. The other thing, if I had to put blame, I would say I've always believed in the in the Gandhian phrase, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. Yeah. And so if you see a situation like this and you can affect it by being part of the solution, not the problem, as wonderfully indulgent as it is to sit and doom scroll on Twitter all day, I felt our firm's obligation was to those founders and CFOs we work with and to our employees. And so you work around the clock, you work all night, you're communicating as a partnership to say, what can we make sure to do so that there's the minimal amount of harm befalling any of our companies? And just seeing again, these are those moments where you remember and you talk about years later. Do you need to evoke that sort of principle of empathy and patience when it comes to controlling a contagion like this? How does empathy play a role? How does patience play a role when in some ways containing a contagion that in fact doesn't always breed empathy or patience in the moment? No, it's such a great question. I mean, and I think for for me, you go back to trust, right? Trust is being placed on me by the founders we work with. I place trust on them. And when you have these difficult conversations in the middle of the night, you realize we have to be here for each other we were very clear that we're not gonna let our companies suffer. So we were ready on Sunday at four o'clock to have a call to figure out which of our companies may need cash Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and we were ready to kind of help them. But you know, the, the bigger thing I'd say, I think what's missing on the empathy front is people have to realize how difficult it is to be an owner and make a decision. Everyone can Monday morning quarterback and criticize before or after. But in the moment, you, you're you just kind of flying blind a little bit. You're trying to figure out what to do, both as an investor and as a board member. I think what I, what I didn't like about this thing is that I understand actually when it comes to payroll and when it comes to fiduciary duty, the need to get your money out for a little bit. I actually don't blame people who are thinking about that. Yeah. But now you have an opportunity to go back. The federal, in some ways, SVB is the, close, is the safest place to put money now. Right. And so I think... There are many firms in our industry, many startups built by SVB. If you go put $0 back with them, I don't think that's fair, given how yeah. much they've done for our industry and for our individual firms. So sure. we're, we've gone back to SVB already, and we plan to continue working with them, with our companies. I think that's the, the thing that has to happen. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, um, it'll be really a tragedy, and there's not going to be another exact SVB ever again. It's also a maturity coming of age moment for Silicon Valley, sure, which is they were kind of in many ways a link to the past history of this area, this region. 
And as our business becomes more digitized and globalized, some of those institutions will thrive and survive, some will not. And that's yeah. just sort of a sad reminder of what can happen so quickly. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with Somesh Dash. Stay tuned. Conversation. It's the antidote to apathy and the catalyst for relationships. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians, so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello, I am Odyssey dance artist Bijoyani Satpathi, and you are listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing with Abhay Dandekar. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation now with Somesh Dash. You know, we were just saying how much of a common language there is, just sort of understanding the California experience, the, the Berkeley experience, the experience in the Bay Area. Um, and, and that's something that's relatively unique in the sense that you and I can immediately connect upon about that. With someone like you, you travel quite a bit, you meet people from across the globe, how easy is that to, in some ways, kind of translate to other people? You know, it's, it's such a great question. For me, Abhay, um, my parents emigrated to California in the late 70s. I was born right after. And there was always, you remember growing up, there was always this like, are you Indian or are you American debate? Right. And for me, I always just gravitated to, I'm both. And isn't that special? Yeah. And I really immersed myself in both worlds so wholeheartedly. Now I look back and I'm not quite sure what the origin was that for that, besides just loving parents who never discouraged me from going deeper and deeper into either culture. Yeah. My parents, you know, had actually studied in graduate school in Canada and then came here for employment in the late seventies. My father was in the computer uh, industry, early days of databases at IBM and then Oracle. Yeah. And my mother ended up working in the display industry. But what was amazing was many of them all came from India with just this sort of notion of opportunity. They left an India that was also very different than the India that our cousins grow up in today. Right. And they were holding on to some ways that last bit of, of um, how do you put it, legacy that sort of came from the heritage of, of Indian culture in sort of the 40s and 50s when they grew up. Sure. And so... I was a product of a home that really emphasized exposure to Sanskrit, Vedanta, exposure to Indian classical music and Bollywood, exposure to traditional dance as well as modern infusion dance. And so I, to this day, even with my own children, kind of embrace all of that. Yeah. California, in many ways, if you look at the demographics, is like a nation, yeah. right? Based on GDP, yeah. we'd be one of the seventh largest in the world. Yeah. Based on population, yeah. we're larger than most countries across the world. I think for me, I grew up loving the San Francisco 49ers, the Golden State Warriors, the San Francisco Giants, you know, you and I went to Cal. But, you know, for me, the Bay Area is home. It's a special place at a time when, you know, during the pandemic, there was a lot of criticism, many of it fair, about the Bay Area. Yeah. It's where I have community. I know that's a theme of your show. It's where I have roots. It's where I was educated. It's where my family is. So I'm still in love with this place, and I still find so many new things to explore all the time. Kind of being proud of being Californian, being South Asian, um, when, when you are, in fact, now, you know, present and engaged with people who may not necessarily be from the area or what that's like, 
And especially with that kind of backdrop that you mentioned of being a South Asian American and Indian American, what does that feel like to share when it comes to, but particularly even in the professional environment? I love the question. I, you know, to go back a little bit, my parents emigrated from a smaller state in India called Orissa, Orissa is the pronunciation for it, in Eastern India. And so there's a very close-knit family friend circle we have. We're st- I'm still very close to them. And like many in the diaspora, you know, there was a lot of regional affinities. But to this day, when I tell people my parents from Orissa, not even, by the way, not Indians, but Indians are like, What's, where's that, right. right? Is that near Sri Lanka? Is yeah. that near, you know, the Maldives? It's a, it's a very vibrant culture. It's got some of the most historic temples. Odissi dance is one of the most, it's one of the purest forms of Indian dance that you know, predates many other forms. We always felt from our community that we had to educate people about mm. who we were, what our culture was. We had to like, you know, dispel certain myths. We still do. I think that Genesis Abe helped me, you know, in some ways be really proud of being Indian, where for me, it was always an and, not an or. Yeah. I was, yes, I was from Orissa and I speak Oriya fluently. And I come from a family of people that were very proud of being journalists and social workers in Orissa. But I was also an Indian. And so I embraced learning Hindi by watching the Mahabharat and Ramayana with my grandparents and they visited. Yeah. How many diaspora kids probably did that, yeah. right? Yeah, totally. So, and then on top of that, I think I also grew up loving music like you have. Eh? And I played a lot of music. I played violin for about 14 years. I played saxophone. I had a passion for learning new instruments. I actually tried to reverse engineer popular Indian music because look, turns out my family friends didn't love the Bach as much after a while. <laughs> right. And so that became what I did at family friend parties to get a little attention. And then I grew up in the best era of hip hop where, you know, I mean, the kinds of talent we had coming out of the Bay Area and L.A., in terms of hip hop and rock and roll and a lot of genres that were coming out of the West Coast. If you go to Seattle, you know, a lot of, you know, grunge was coming yeah. out of there, Nirvana. So I I just really embraced all of it. I love, you know, in a lot of my day job today, a lot of what we look at is where culture is evolving. Yeah. How are the youth of today utilizing technology to express themselves? I always felt like an emissary to answer your question. Yeah. Wherever I went, I felt I, I proudly held the flags of California, the Bay Area, India and Orissa, but I also wanted to learn. Like I, I immersed myself with friends, you know, in New York, or I'd go when I traveled to India and I'd go to other parts of the country with my parents. I was so enthralled the first time I went to Rajasthan or when I visited, you know, Mumbai for the first time. I know you have roots in Maharashtra, but, yeah. you know, going to some of these places and realizing how rich Indian culture is, I feel like even being really into it by the end of my life, I'll probably know 0.01% of what there is to know. It sounds like that for you, that sort of voracious appetite to learn more about other people's flags and other people's stories um, has, has carried you obviously you know, very far in success. When, when you're at a party, how do you actually, as, as a venture capitalist and someone who's particularly a growth stage inventor, how do you actually introduce yourself? <laughs> in terms of what kind of party it is, if it's right. in Silicon Valley, you have to be very specific. So I invest in, you know, AI series B stage companies with double digit percent. Right. Like you go into that yeah. mode. But most of the time I spend is away from, you know, that world. And, and most of my friends are not in technology yeah. and a lot of them aren't familiar with this. So for them, I say we help companies, right? Yeah. We help founders as they scale their businesses. And I think for me, the greatest joy was I've been thinking a lot as my kids get older, they ask really insightful questions, as I'm sure yours do. 
about dad, what do you do? Right. Cause yeah. like, as my son just put it the other day, which kind of hit a nerve, he said, dad, you're on the phone a lot. And it sounds like you like to give money to people who don't really need it yet. Um, <laughs> which is a great summary. Of is that kind dad. of the uh, kernel of what that actually is? Like, I guess you're right. They don't need it for another six months, but I'd like to give it to them now. Not when they really need it. So, um, no, but it was, I think, you know, when I, I was growing up, I remember I was very fortunate. My father worked at Oracle in the 90s and Oracle in the 90s actually was going through a tough period in the early yeah. 90s. They had a difficult stretch there where, you know, sales were plummeting, the recession had started. And I got to hear, you know, my father worked closely with the founder CEO who's still, you know, very active at Oracle, Larry Ellison, about some of his experiences with him, how he was leading. And so for me at the dinner table, the first entrepreneur I ever heard about was Larry Ellison. And I just thought most entrepreneurs would be like him, like yeah. brilliant, product-oriented, visionary, non-linear, contrarian. And so when I came to venture, I, I didn't realize it when I started, but those kinds of founders also like a certain type of investor or like certain types of advisors. And you know they typically are the ones who go for the biggest upside. They also, as we've seen in media, can sometimes flame out and We've seen issues with behavior from some of them very publicly, but I was ready in some ways because I didn't expect the great entrepreneurs to be like really conventional. I thought they would all be nonlinear thinkers like a Larry Ellison or a Steve Jobs. And to this day, when young people join our firm, I, I sort of point to the fact and say, hey, if you're looking for a straight line problem solver, that's, that's great, but they're probably not going to be someone really going for what's not clear on a piece of paper, what's truly like pathbreaking and innovative. And it's really, there's just a select few that can redefine industries. We had the privilege of working with Reed Hastings at Netflix, you know, when he started that company yeah. or the crew at Twitter, when they got launched in 2008 or Evan Spiegel at Snapchat, or more recently, Jason Citron at Discord. And these are the kinds of founders where every step along the way is fraught with risk, but also opportunity. And it takes a certain mentality to be able to stomach that. And it's not for everybody. Yeah. I don't, it's like the old parental guidance warning. Like, you know, beware at home. Like, I would say for those trying to get into venture capital, think about who you are and what you really enjoy doing. If you like being on roller coasters and sort of, you know, a little bit more volatility, I'd say like, it's probably the most wonderful industry. If you're looking for more stability and predictability, going super late stage or private equities may be the right fit. And I'd assume then that most Silicon Valley conversations open up with a G, PG, PG-13, R, Kind of rating with it, or yeah, I think that's pretty, pretty accurate. accurate. Okay, I, I think end at R. I think that's fine, right? Yeah. Or don't go below G. Yeah, I, I think that's good. Well, yeah. and 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 I wonder. I mean, like as someone who's been through so many cycles and has been doing this for a fair amount now, I mean, how is being a growth stage investor, for that matter, kind of evolved in the past twenty years? I mean, you mentioned sort of like the giants of like Larry Elson, Steve Jobs, who's styles are relatively timeless and their messages are timeless. And yet there's also so much evolution of this landscape in the last 15, 20 years. What, what's your reflection perhaps in, in your own time and seeing some of these life cycles through of what, that, what the landscape is now, particularly contrasting it to what it's been like in the last several years? So when I joined IVP in March of 2005, growth investing meant basically just not series A, i.e. series B. Yeah. A series B company was typically just a product was out of market. You had a few leaders, but really a team that was still building. You know, you were still really testing to see if you had a company or not. Yeah. Right? You had some early signs of progress, 
but you certainly didn't know for sure that this was going to be a sustainable standalone company that was going to go the distance. And I think that was the definition with which our firm really set out to say, those entrepreneurs need help. They need help scaling. It's a different type of help than pure innovation at zero to one. It's a help around how do you build a business out of a product? How do you build a leadership team out of two to three co-founders? How do you think about expanding globally from being typically hyper-locally oriented? In the last five to 10 years, especially in the last five, Abhay, what's happened is there's been a lot of capital that's gone into passive investing and pre-IPO investing and hedge fund investing. And so that's a very different style of investing. That is, hey, you're about to go public uh, in the next six to 18 months. I am going to make my decision based on an arbitrage of where I think your pricing will be then, what I can get into now, and what my IRR will be. I always say like good venture firms don't talk about IRR. They really focus on what is the long-term paid-in return capital to your investors. And that's the big difference in mentalities. We, we're with these companies. We meet them one to two years before we invest. We're with them five, seven, sometimes 10 years. And we stay connected to them long after yeah. we even, they're public companies. And that's a very different- Different relationship. A different relationship. Yeah. The other thing that I would say that's changed is, um, you know, there was an onslaught of dot-com IPOs. Right. And to correct for that, the SEC passed Sarbanes-Oxley and a lot of legislation that made the cost of going public really expensive. And a lot of those entrepreneurs started realizing, wait a minute, going public is hard. We should wait a couple more years and we need to be ready for it because of what happened before. A mini market was then created by originally a small group of firms like IVP, but later on by all these hedge funds and others who said, wait a minute, if we're getting in only at the IPO when these companies are at 500 million, a billion of revenue, the venture capitalists are the capturing the value kind of in between that. They started coming a little bit earlier and I think, you know, it's easy in the media to say all crossover investors are extra wide. There, many of our partners that we work with uh, in other firms are great crossover investors. The part that's difficult is you have a short-term mentality. Technology, if you had a short-term mentality, you would basically never buy a share of Amazon, like right. when Bezos was building AWS, yeah. right? And so, or, you know, Facebook, when Zuck was basically porting the platform to mobile. I think that's the delta is those of us that, you know, choose to build our careers here realize that you have to be in it for the long term. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a lot of really scary moments. I, I think most of our great investments have had multiple, oh, this might end the company moments, yeah. which were risks. But that's also when an entrepreneur is making a contrarian bet and it pays off, or when you as an investor are going against the grain and sort of saying, I know this seems a little crazy, but if it works, it's big. That is the ultimate joy yeah. more than anything else in this business. There's a nirvana that comes from, wow, like we were partners together together the world was against us and we actually made it work. And by the way, many times it doesn't work. And that's part of life too. It's a relationship that develops over almost like shared trauma. And is that amongst the biggest misconceptions about money and technology and investing in Silicon Valley, that it's very quick, it's very easy. There's really no compelling trauma that you have to go through. And, And how do you dispel that myth? I think what's happened is the stories, I always think about the unsung heroes and you think about it, like there's a founder myth where the founders get so much of the credit and they deserve it. But beneath every founder are these amazing leaders, amazing co-founders, amazing engineers, like our parents, when they came, nobody in the era that our parents came were given the opportunity to be founders. Venture capital didn't fund people that came from India, you know, and didn't have executive experience. And that, 
Scarlet Letter is still on our parents' generation. Right. And so when they see all of us achieving, I think there's a certain amount of pride yeah. that they feel for our generation. But I think what also happened is Silicon Valley got carried away thinking like it's almost a guaranteed success. It's yeah. almost that like it's all a bury the failures, don't ever mention them and only focus on the success. And what's happened because of that, that the mental health issues that founders today are dealing mm-hmm. with, where they have, many of them have imposter syndrome. There's this feeling that I have to, I have to showcase a confidence that everything is going well and I am crushing it and I'm beating him and I'm going to build this. And it's all based on nothing. Yeah. The truth is every great company is only a failed product launch away from irrelevance, right? Mm-hmm. And no company, if you look at IBM just celebrated its 100th birthday, all of the other companies in IBM's cohort that were considered great, even General Electric, which we all thought would continue you know, Forever. rising, yeah. has, has faded. And coming from an Indian background, if you believe basically in our spiritual texts that essentially talk about the ephemeral nature, the lack of permanence, that helps you understand that this is all part of the journey and that there are different people, different companies, and there are avatars and reincarnation that'll happen, right? Um, but to me, having that foundation in Indian spirituality and mythology gave me more context, I think, by which to handle the success and the failure. Yeah. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with venture capitalist Somesh Dash. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation now with Somesh Dash. I'm curious about one thing. Are there, is there anything that still surprises you or catches you by (laughs) surprise in being an Indian American or a South Asian American in Silicon Valley? Oh, there's so many things. (laughs) Um, I, you know, one of the, one of the things that actually makes me sad is just how many Indian Americans didn't get the opportunity to go to India. I think about that a lot because my proximity to our culture came directly as a result of my parents taking me from a young age and immersing myself in city life, town life, village life in Orissa with my cousins where I was playing cricket, right? And I was like learning all about like the different cultural aspects of rural life. And I loved it. I think, you know, having that ability now to go to India it's also very different than when you and I have a when as kids, sure. like, you know, there are, there's certainly a lot more advances and, you know, in many ways it's seamless, you know, with the U S experience. Yeah. I also think sometimes we, um, as a community, we still have a little bit of imposter syndrome. And so in that, what I mean is we really, there's all the memes that we always see every time there's an Indian CEO announced like, Oh, now your mom's going to say that you're a failure. <laughs> all that. I think beneath that, what I always think about is, our community has a lot of growing up to do with mental health. Like there are so many people suffering from anxiety, from depression, from self-harm, from suicide attempts. And, you know, it is still taboo to a large degree in our culture. It's improved since we were kids to talk about these issues and the words we use in Hindi to refer to Emirati, right? Use words like bagal, right? Those words, if you think about literally what they do to someone, they, 
they objectify them, they put them in a bucket that makes them feel like the other. And I think our community is now coming to an age where creating a forum or discussion uh, arenas where people can really talk more about this. It's something I'm personally passionate about. Yeah. I have the privilege of serving on the board of two companies that are touching mental health, Lyra Health and Thrive Global. Yeah. Um, I've seen also, even in our university systems, how many kids through the pandemic are suffering, yeah. right? from all of this. So that surprises me that like our community hasn't made more progress. On one hand, it doesn't surprise me given sort of the heritage of how we talk about mental health in India. Yeah. On the other hand, I think there's a looming epidemic in both India and the United States among Indian Americans that if we don't do a better job, we're going to lose some of the highest potential young and old members of our, of our community to just self-harm and suicide. So many people in our community came out of India at a time that was tumultuous, right? Partition had happened. And I was all surprised as a kid growing up, we didn't talk about partition at all in yeah. the K through 12 education system in California. But we have a lot of parents, in some cases, grandparents who lived through that era who never were able to fully express what they went through. Yep. And I think having their children and grandchildren document their own journeys, talk to them about their, you know, their struggles and, you know, just empathize with what it must have been like to lose so much. Mm. That's something that I've really hoped that I can do, you know, with people that I know who've been through that. Along with the mental health piece and the idea of self-esteem and embracing all the flags, as you mentioned, from your perspective, I mean, are there some also additional priority areas that, that still need work, in your opinion, in the industry, in Silicon Valley, whether it's with respect to inclusion or equity or building community that feels a little bit less like it's an uphill battle. Oh yeah, I mean, the truth is in both India and the United States, there's, the, there's much more of a delta now between the rich and the poor than we saw even as kids growing up of it. Yeah. So one is education. Like a lot, to me, a lot of the, you know, in, in medicine, you always use the term upstream. If you go upstream to why there are more racial attacks on South Asian and Asian Americans today than there were 30 years ago. Why are there issues around uh, unrest with different communities in the United States with the police? Uh, to me, a lot of that goes back to our primary education system. We have in the United States one of the world's greatest feats, which is you know higher education. Yeah. And we all, our parents benefited in many cases from it. We all benefit, our kids are going to benefit. And our parents you know, were lucky that they came to this country at a time where they welcomed immigrants, yeah. which is actually the other thing that I'm personally very passionate slash involved in. Immigration reform is something that absolutely needs to happen. And it's personal for you and me. Yeah. Right? Like I hear sometimes like I go to the local Costco or I go to the local grocery store and I see a young Indian family and I see a young kid and I'm like, that was, that was me. Yeah. That was you like basically 30 years ago. And the sad reality is today to get a green card, to get an H1B is very, very different yeah. than what it was when our parents came. And on top of just the rhetoric, the xenophobia, obviously, like, you know, on one hand, it's great for India because there's going to be less brain drain. There's going to be amazing entrepreneurship created in India. On the other hand, it would be really sad if people who want to be in the United States and build families like the opportunities you and I got as kids, if they can't do that because of an immigration policy that is so politicized and so outdated that it doesn't enable a lot of these individuals to stay in this country. So I think those are the two other areas, you know, that really education and immigration that are so fundamentally like in need of reform. Yeah. And my hope is that we get to a point politically where it becomes less of 
radical arguments from the right or left and more moderate, measured uh, state and federal reforms that could happen through policy that can enable this. There are people working on, I spoke with Rokana, there's people working on these issues and putting really a lot of hard work into it. So yeah. I don't want to discount the efforts of many of them. But there's also, unfortunately, just um, a paralysis in D.C. around getting something done. Let me switch gears for a second and, and ask you, you know, the, yeah. the title of the show centers around trust. And for someone who's in venture capital, trust is probably the ultimate currency, right? Um, so so for you, what, what, you know, in a nutshell, what kind of garners your trust in a company, in a founder, or in a concept even? Wow, such a fantastic question. Um, different investors have different styles and different stages like to invest in. For me, I've always indexed on the founder themselves. What do he or she want to build? Why do they want to do it? What motivates them? And I like to look a little bit orthogonally and figure out, hey, what are their background stories? You know, who are their friends and support networks? What do they want to do if they weren't doing technology entrepreneurship? And the, the part about trust is recognizing that there are so many bad times. You know, one of my one of my closest friends was at Dropbox. And I remember him saying, you know, if you took the x-axis and you you sort of truncate it down from years to month to quarters, quarters to months, months to weeks, weeks to days, days to hours. I mean, it's almost like going to a hospital and see something that goes like this, right? <laughs> right. And so he said, you know, what you realize is many investors just don't have the stomach. They just can't handle it. They don't want to know. They just want to see perfection in the end product. Mm. For me, I've always, and maybe again, it's back to the Indian chaos. Like I've always embraced it, yeah. right? Like I've always enjoyed like going to India and debating things with my cousin. And, you know, you kind of, you know, scream and yell that your argument's right. And then you hug each other and have, you know, breweries together. Right. Like that's just kind of how India is, right? Yeah. I think for me, that's a little bit of like what I love is when you build that, I, I got good advice from a venture capitalist once. He said, a lot of VCs assume when you write a check, you've gained the trust of the entrepreneur. Trust is actually, you have to earn it, yeah. right? So my strategy to earn trust of A is even before I ever invest, we focus on how can we figure out what are the things that really are important to this founder? How do we start showcasing what we can do to help them? Let us start helping them recruit team members. Let's help them get customers. Let's have introduced them to strategic distribution partners. Let's find an independent board member who could be a candidate. And that's even before we invest. Yeah. And that's just so they understand how we work. I can say a hundred things, but when I do it, then they understand. And I can also see how they react. Sometimes you realize many founders just really want to be left alone and never want to talk to their investors. And that's not, I understand that. That's not the right fit for us, but that's that's totally you know fair. The other thing that I would say about trust is, I've seen what happens when trust is broken, mm -hmm. right? On either side, when an investor breaks an entrepreneur's trust and where, or when an entrepreneur breaks an investor's trust. And now there's many popular books and miniseries about the famous ones in sure. India. It's always easy as a journalist to sort of say, hey, that's so simple and there's a bright line of right and wrong. But when you're in it and when you really dig into what happens, like, you know, these are very chaotic situations. These are things that don't have a playbook or a script. These are companies that have never existed before, right? Yeah. And again, like these are companies where I remember founder once told me, he said, you think this is my decision. It's not. It's the culmination of the decision for 60 employees, 180, 200 family members of these employees, career paths that matter. So I have the responsibility to speak on behalf of all my stakeholders, not just me individually. And so I feel the same way where when I invest in a company, I'm representing a 43-year-old partnership 
I'm representing all my partners. You know, I'm representing our investors, endowments, foundations, pension funds. I mean, these are, you know, important constituencies in our economy. And so when you take that responsibility seriously, you it has to be set up with the foundation of trust. Yeah. And I think one of the mistakes, and I made this mistake too early on, is that you just want to give a founder the good news or kind of pat him on the back. Yeah. I think the thing I learned over time is it's so it's so much more important to have that honesty and say, hey, listen, um, I really disagree with what you're doing here. I disagree with the strategy. I would advise you to do something differently. At the end of the day, our job as venture capitalists is to advise and persuade. We don't have control. Yeah. So it's ultimately going to be the CEO or founder's decision. But um, what we learned was just being a cheerleader, just telling the founder what they want to hear can have severe repercussions for you, your reputation, and the business when things go bad. Yeah. And this era of a 2022, 2023 is exposing that when a lot of bad advice is given and excess is building, it's a really painful drop from the zenith. Do you almost need the conflict and that back and forth and that real kind of chafing sometimes to in fact get to the point where things are uh, elegant and smooth and much more easy? There's different styles and entrepreneurs come in like different ages and stages. <laughs> so I would say first time entrepreneurs, certainly they've, they haven't done it before. They're more raw. I'm now at an age where they're like starting to be 15, 20 years younger than me. <laughs> so I've, I've gone from being like contemporary to like annoying uncle probably. There um, yeah. There's others that are more experienced or have different styles. I, I always think our job as a venture capitalist is to really adapt a bit to the style that's most effective in building trust and communicating. So some founders I work with, they do really well, you know, with kind of email or like text conversations. Yeah. Others really like the face-to-face -face in person. Others love the late night phone call when the kids are going to sleep. And I'm always trying to figure out what is the right modality of communication yeah. where I can be most effective. And it's my job actually as a service provider to those founders to adapt to what will be the most effective. The one thing venture capitalists and, um, entrepreneurs have in common is like, it is, it's a lonely job. Yeah. Most of the partnerships, the great venture capital partnerships are actually quite small. If you look yeah. at them, if you look at the people leading investments in the most high performance companies, and most of the executive teams of the great companies are also limited. Like if you think about any of the great startup companies or public companies, there's usually, you can count on one hand, max two, the, the people that are part of the real leadership team. Tight knit relationships that sort of garnered that momentum and that trust in the very beginning. Yeah. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with Somesh Dash. Every story told is a lesson learned, and every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians, so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hey, this is Cal Penn. I'm an actor, author, former public servant, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Hey everyone, welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation now with Somesh Dash. 
Let me ask you, how do you balance home runs versus consistent, reliable singles? <laughs> ah, I love it. It's a, it, this is a topic that comes up a lot because there's different strategies that different individuals within firms follow and different firms follow. Yeah. One of the most important drivers is just the fear that we lose relevance or access to the game-changing companies, technologies, and founders of tomorrow. And we owe it because we were given this amazing platform and to build it further and further. So I would say it's a balance. And the beauty is of our business is it's a portfolio. So right. if, if I'm going to go and make an investment in a first-time founder with a higher risk profile earlier stage where if things go great, I could see this being a kind of franchise defining one. But if things go bad, I'm losing a bunch of money. Um, I can handle... So there's two in interesting things. I could probably do only a few of those simultaneously. Um, I need to balance those with probably a bit more mature companies with a second time founder, maybe in markets that don't have the same level of volatility. Yeah. Um, as we do this more as a partnership, like looking across the portfolio. The other thing though is like, you know, it, it takes a lot to be an engaged advisor. And so uh, there was a time where I was on, I think four or five companies are all going through this volatility at the same time. And you realize that to give your best to an entrepreneur you hit a limit where you can't be on too many boards. We generally at IVP try to max kind of board service at like six boards or so. If any of us are feeling overloaded, we ask our partners to step in and help us or, you know, bring in an independent. So, but that's an important thing to remember because I think where sometimes back to your trust question where this podcast started, I think if you are communicating with your founders that you work with and say, this is on my plate. These are my personal goals. I'm doing this more and more as I'm bringing founders into like, this is my life right now at IVP and what we're doing. And I got to tell you, like some of the insights I get from entrepreneurs about just because they're such strategic thinkers and so brilliant yeah. and cerebral have helped us scale our platform. Sure. And so we're integrating sure. more and more. When I interviewed at IVP 18 years ago, I remember one of the, one of my partners, still my partner said to me, when practiced well, venture capital is an amazing business because it leads to job creation and wealth yeah. creation. For so many people through the free market, we've gone into this period in kind of society all across the world in which capitalism is actually no longer, you know, lauded as sort of a system by which you can create economic growth. Capitalism itself is questioned. And, and because of this rich-poor gap, what happens is we saw it in our political system in the United States. A lot of people start wondering if there's better systems out there like socialism. Yeah. Coming from Indian heritage, if you think about when our parents emigrated, the early story of India post-1947 was that of kind of a mix of socialism and capitalism because of the influence of Russia, yeah. right? And a lot of people came to this country because of capitalism. That is the part of the immigration story. And a lot of people fled socialism, whether it's in Cuba or like a pseudo form of socialism in India. I always find it interesting that the people that are the most rabid talking about these new political movements in the United States are those that actually have never lived in countries or states right. that actually practice. <laughs> never have lived experience. They never had to live the experience yeah. like so many of our families did. Yeah. And, and in that way, you know, it's basically about empathy. And, and I, I read a piece where you wrote that empathy cannot be underrated in a crisis. And, and so I'm curious for you, what have been some of the empathy accelerators for you, either in your personal or professional life that have allowed you to sort of weather some of this stuff? Yeah. So on the professional side, you know, I made an attempt a few different times to start a company, right? I went to a startup right in my summer of my junior year at Cal. 
that was basically just getting off the ground. I think I was the eighth person who interviewed in 2000. Yeah. You know, I made an attempt in 2002 to build sort of an incubator model. I um, got together with some business school classmates and was on the founding team of a company that was building something and recruiting in the internet. I realized how difficult it is. It all sounds good on paper. It all even sounds, it looks beautiful on a whiteboard. But when you put it into practice, I realized about myself, boy, like I didn't have the empathy until I tried it myself and realized like, this is really, really hard. So like, if you want to be a great investor or venture capitalist and you want to advise founders, first fail, like first go and start something and realize like how difficult it is. I realized it a few different times. And I, and then I, you know, came to the conclusion that I'm probably a better advisor investor than someone to found a company. And I realized that luckily in my late twenties, you know, (laughs) I think like you can talk all about empathy, but until you've been pushed to the brink where you have responsibility of people, you don't feel like you're losing sleep at night. I still, to this day, when we did riffs recently in some of our companies, reductions in forces, it hurts because I remember what it felt like being affected by riffs. I remember what it felt like when you had to make those decisions with, with startups I was involved yeah. in. And there's an emotional part of this. There's a cerebral part, which yes, it makes sense. You have to preserve cash and extend your runway. The emotional thing is thinking about those employees, their families, their kids, it's hard. And I know that it is those moments that are the hardest for founders mm-hmm. because of it, we're, it's a human business. It's a human. We're not at the point yet where like chat GPT and AI are going to basically run right. companies completely. Yeah. I hope we're never there, but right. that may happen <laughs> yeah. in our lifetime. The, on the, on the personal front, I, you know, you know, I graduated away from Berkeley in 2001 and right when the dot-com bus started and I saw what happened to some of my closest friends where they couldn't pay rent. They lost their jobs. They were out of campus recruiting. They had to move. They told their parents. I dealt with a lot of that, yeah. you know, and I never felt I really, again, back to the model minority 20 years ago, I never felt our community wanted to hear stories about people that were failing. We were just looking for the success stories and we were trying to regurgitate that, right? right? right. So I'm hopeful that like this next generation feels comfortable enough to share that they're not doing well, that they're being vulnerable. And that came out of my own personal experience where I felt very alone, very isolated at different points early in my career until I found my path. And then this is probably what helps me have so much gratitude is that I know what it felt like when things weren't going well. And now that it is, I see a lot of people in entrepreneurship and business generally just get carried away with what's next, what's next, what's next. I think it's important to have ambition, drive, goals. But you also have to be so appreciative of just being in the seat you are. Here I am like an Indian kid sitting at this 43-year-old firm in like a seat of influence. And I don't take that for granted. I have to earn that seat every day. That's what motivates me. I never thought I would be in the seat when I joined here 18 years ago. So Mesh, you, you talk with such balance and centeredness in this and in really understanding, you know, so much of decision-making is based on data and analysis and empirical information to sort of drive what we do, especially in times of volatility, but also in times of, of success. How much does the adage of when you know, you know, or instinct, or perhaps that kind of art of venture capitalism and investing, how much does that play a role for you? It plays a huge role in venture and more importantly in life. You know, different people take away different things. I was very lucky as a kid I to go to Chinmaya Mission. And and I, I was marveling. We had all heard about Indians inventing mathematics and like the number zero and others coming out of the brilliance of Indian mathematicians from a long time ago. 
But what I was fascinated by was if you see the depth at which some of the great scholars, right, Shankaracharya, or you look at Swami Vivekananda when he came and would interpret these texts. I mean, these are like 100, over 100 years ago. Yeah. Or Yogananda with Autobiography of a Yogi. They didn't have the data, right? right. They, didn't have, they had learned experiences and they had intuition. So, you know, different people took away different things from Isaacson's book on Steve Jobs. The thing I really liked about it was his recognition of intuition coming from his study of Yogananda, right? And so for me, I think you have to balance the data with listening to instinct and intuition. Now, that doesn't mean that you're careless with it, right? I think what a lot of people do then is say, well, I don't need any data. I'm just going to fly with where I feel like I'm doing. Well, that's not responsible. I think you have to look at both. The thing that I always think about is, am I asking the right questions? There is a field of mathematics and topography where like, they looked at the shapes of basically data curves and they said, are you asking the right questions for this data set? Mm -hmm. And so like for me, Venture to maybe to give a mathematical concept, like venture is obsessed with like the second derivative, which is how fast is the growth rate? Is it getting faster? I always think with the integral, which is like, are we looking at the right inputs to create that growth? Uh, right. Yeah. And the inputs are typically product and innovation, team composition, and market evolution. And so for me, if I can understand those fundamentals, then we can help together with an entrepreneur think about what the right rate of growth is that's sustainable. You know, I would say you have to bring joy into whatever you do. Like we talk about this a lot at work where time flies by. You asked in a previous question about like personal things. I have friends who have lost due to cancer who are my age. I've lost, you know, family friends during COVID. I am much more appreciative now of like, we have infinite possibilities, but a finite amount of time on this earth. And so if you get away from the people you love, the things you love to do, it won't be worth it. I saw it with my grandmother who passed away two years ago. You know, she was an incredibly influential journalist, poet, social worker in India, and she died with very few material possessions. And yet, like her impact was such that, you know, our prime minister and many other people commemorated her life. Sure. And you, you think about that as an influence. Like if we can all influence our local communities, we can influence the world in positive directions over the course of our 60, 70 years of working. I mean, how great would that be? So I've never shared this story, but one of the more formative things that happened to me is when I graduated from UC Berkeley, uh, as I mentioned, I was a big Indophile and the dot-com bust happened. And so I didn't know what to do. I was at a crossroads, but I got an opportunity to go live in Mumbai, India, and actually work for Sony Entertainment Television. And what was really interesting was I had grown up with my parents, like watching Indian movies. And so I loved Indian music. I listened avidly to old Kishore Kumar, Lata Mangeshkar, Mukesh songs, to all the new remixes by Bali Sagu and Rehman, you know. And I, I, to this day, I'm just a huge fan of Indian classical music, Indian folk music, Indian pop and Bollywood music. So I, I, this was like the dream job. I go to India. I, you know, was very starstruck with Bollywood. I was like, oh my God, I grew up kind of watching these people. I'm going to Nas Cinema and Fremont. And suddenly I have to work with them. And I remember what my, what my boss told me. He said, you know, you have to remember this is a business, right? This is a negotiation. They're on one side, we're on the other. Don't forget that. Yeah. And so I had a chance then to see some of the people I grew up idolizing, whether it was Madhuri Dixit, you know, or Anil Kapoor or Jackie Shroff or Shah Rukh Khan. And, and there are many of them are just the most wonderful people. Sure. But my last project, was um, actually helping on the Academy Award campaign for Lagan. And Lagan was nominated in the foreign film category in 2002. It was the first film, I think, since Mother India that was nominated. So it was a big deal. 
And so I had the opportunity to come out to Los Angeles and actually work closely with Amir Khan, the producer and actor in that movie, and Ashutosh Gawarikar, who was the director of the movie. My job was basically to like do the things that they weren't able to do easily in LA because my boss in India understood these were like the most powerful people in India. Yeah. But in 2002, the Sony brass in LA weren't quite sure what to make of these two. You were the, you were the fixer, so to speak. I was the fixer. I would take them to get a laptop because they didn't know where to go. Right. So I'd expose them to wonderful places like Circuit City and Best Buy. <laughs> I'd take them to the mall to figure out where to buy a suit, you know? Yeah. And I, I helped set up screenings actually at UCLA. And what was really interesting for me was that was probably the best example of it, of like, it all kind of came together. Yeah. Because I was from the diaspora. I spoke a language of the Indian Americans who were walking around Robley Hall at UCLA. And yet I had lived in India just recently, worked at Sony. So I knew how to communicate with talent. To me, it was just, I learned a lot about our community. I learned a lot about the love that like creative people get around the world, no matter what they do. And it actually taught me in a lot of ways, developers and founders are similar to actors and singers and producers. They're these artistic, creative geniuses, but many of them get into business almost by accident, not by choice. And they need infrastructure and help and guidance for how to get around it. And so I was that kind of help, you know, in a small way for that campaign. We, to finish the story, we didn't win the Oscar, but I think the experience was very, very helpful. And that experience of just being suddenly helping screen, you know, a film that was nominated for the Oscar was something I could never have dreamed of, but maybe it wasn't just pure chance given all the things my parents and my grandparents had done to educate me about our culture along the way. Well, I mean, from bearing flags and having <laughs> great balance and incredible depth to what you do, and moreover, making sure that calculus is still part of the example um, of that balance. So much, thank you so much for joining us and I hope we can do it again. I'd love to, Abe. I'm so grateful for you for doing this. I hope future Abe's, future Sobeshes listen to this and, and get, you know, a little bit of insight into life, you know, when you get older and it's inspiring to see what you're doing for our community. So please continue doing it. Thanks again, Somesh. And as today is the vernal equinox and the sun starts making its way north, that means the compost bin at my house is starting to get more active. Cutting your food waste can reduce your carbon footprint by up to 300 kilograms of CO2 equivalents per year. So use or donate what you buy and compost the rest. Till next time, I'm Abhay Dandekar.